I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 11. We're going to pick up the last several verses in Mark chapter 11 and then read the parable of the talents in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son, Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. After Jesus had been tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Luke's gospel states, that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news of him was spreading through all the countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and all admired him. He then came to Nazareth, his hometown, and according to his custom, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up to read the scriptures, and the synagogue attended, handed him the book of Isaiah. He opened the book to these verses. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to announce release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that have been hurt, and to announce the acceptable year of the Lord. He closed the book, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was riveted on him. And he began to speak. This very day, this scripture has been fulfilled 
while you were listening to it. Those who heard what he said were amazed at the graciousness of his words. They said to one another, isn't this Joseph's son? They remembered him as a mere carpenter's son, uneducated. Jesus spoke their mind when he said, I know what you're wanting to say to me. Cure yourself, doctor. Let's see you do in your own country what you did in Capernaum. Jesus then uttered the often quoted statement, No prophet is ever welcomed in his own country. He then told them a true story in the days of Elijah, where it did not rain for three and a half years, and a famine occurred. There were many widows in Israel in that day that were on the verge of starvation, but God did not send Elijah to any of them. Instead, God sent Elijah to a widow and her son as she was preparing her last meal together in Sidon, a Gentile widow. Elijah told her to prepare him a meal. She did, and God miraculously provided enough for her, for Elijah, and for her son. Elijah then told her that the flour and the oil would not run out until it rained again, and it did not. He then told them another story during Elisha's time, when it was a time when there were many lepers in Israel that needed God to heal them. But God did not send Elijah to heal any of them. Instead, God healed only Naaman, a Gentile from Syria. When the people heard this, they were furious. Why? Because Jesus was telling them that God was bypassing the Israelites because of their unfaithfulness. They jumped up and drove him out of town, intending to throw him off the cliff. Instead, he walked straight through them and went on his way. It wasn't his time. In this discourse, Jesus was exposing their hearts, the hearts of the people of Israel, and explaining that God was taking away the blessing from Israel and giving it to others. Why? Because they were rejecting him. Rejecting God's authority, rejecting his servants, and most importantly, rejecting his son caused God to remove his blessing from Israel, resulting in their eternal punishment. The good news of the gospel, however, which Israel could not see, is when anyone embraces God's word and embraces God's son in faith, he becomes a part of God's chosen people and is given eternal life in God's kingdom. Going back to our passage today, as Jesus entered Jerusalem and the temple for the third time, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders confronted him. The last time they had seen Jesus, he was throwing buyers and sellers alike out of the temple and overturning tables of the money changers. He quoted the Old Testament prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah when he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. They interrupted his teaching by asking him in Mark eleven twenty eight, By what authority are you doing these things? 
or who gave you authority to do them? The chief priests, scribes, and elders held that only the Sanhedrin could authorize someone to teach. These religious leaders performed a special ordination ceremony for all the candidates that desired to be a rabbi. Once one had this rabbinical authorization, the Sanhedrin then would recognize him as an authorized credentialed teacher. Jesus had no such credentials or authorization. Jesus responded to the religious leaders with a question. He says, I will ask you one question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. They did not believe John the Baptist's message. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe it? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for the people believed that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. The religious leaders answered this way, because as Luke's gospel records, they feared the people, and they feared that they would stone them. Jesus' response to them was, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The question Jesus asked the scribes and the Pharisees posed two possible answers implying the source of John's authority, either man or God, and thereby implying two different sources for Jesus' authority. Not only was John's teaching in baptism from heaven, John himself was proclaiming and confirming that Jesus' authority was from heaven. They had rejected John's message, and they rejected Jesus and his authority as well. To make this truth clear and yet hidden at the same time, Jesus spoke to them in a parable. Mark 12:1 tells us, and he began to speak to them in parables. Jesus created a picture of a common sight in Israel. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Israel, being an agrarian society, could relate to this story. The religious leaders would most likely remember this description from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 5, 1 and 2, it says, Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Notice the similarities between this passage and Mark 12.1. Mark records that a landowner planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, Vineyards were very vulnerable, robbed to, and wild animals. So in order to protect it, the owner would build a wall around it, or a moat, or a hedge to protect it. He then dug a vat under the wine press to collect the juice from the grapes. Building this tower was the last step. The tower had three purposes. It was for security, shelter, and storage. A guard would post himself in the tower and watch for invaders. The tenant 
would then use the shelter during inclement weather, and finally, it would be used as shelter for the tools to care for the vineyard. They would be stored in it. This landowner in Jesus' parable did it right. He planted the vineyard. He provided a place to harvest the grapes. He built security for it, and he leased it out to tenant farmers. The landowner, having prepared the vineyard, would then work out a contract with the tenants. The tenants would give the landowner a portion of the crop, and then the rest would be for them to live on and for their livelihood. It was common for a wealthy landowner to plant a vineyard, lease it out to tenants, and then leave confident that the tenants would care for his vineyard. When harvest time came, the landowner would send his servants in his name to collect what was due him. Those listening to Jesus would have had a mental picture of the parable, for this was common practice in Israel. Verse 2, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. The time to collect his portion had come, so he sent his servants to collect what was due him. Without making assumptions, we can be sure that the owner wanted some grapes or some wine. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The word beat literally means to scourge or to flay. They then sent him away with nothing. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. The literal translation means they hurled stones at him and mistreated or dishonored him. And he sent another, and him they killed. The phrase, him they killed, spoke of an immediate murder. This behavior continued. These hired farmers had become amazingly independent. They were proud, they were resentful, they were possessive, and they were filled with hate toward the owner of the vineyard, as evidenced by their treatment of his servants. So, what is the meaning behind this parable that Jesus was teaching them? As you well know, the landowner is God. He abundantly prepares a vineyard, the nation of Israel, sets them up to be successful, fruitful, and the most blessed of all the nations in the earth. The tenants are the religious leaders. The word that is translated tenants in the Greek, the Greek word is georgos, which is better translated farmer or worker of the soil. These tenants or farmers are to be responsible caretakers of God's vineyard. God had rented out his garden, his vineyard, to Israel, and to the religious leaders to tend it and cultivate it. He had established a covenant with them for the responsible care of his people and to teach them his words, the commandments given to Moses. They, in turn, were to make covenant people of Israel. I personally have a garden. I learned gardening from my father. I've built a wall around it. I've prepared the soil. I've planted seeds. But my work is not done. Once the seeds sprout, it's going to require daily maintenance. If I do not care for the garden, it will become overtaken with weeds, 
It will suffer from lack of water. It'll be destroyed by pests. And eventually it'll be unfruitful. The religious leaders had a responsibility to take care of God's vineyard. He was expecting them to teach the people to obey his word in faith. Instead, they taught them to obey the law as a measuring stick of righteousness rather than in obedience of faith and trust, which God counted as righteous fruit. Abraham was an example of this. We read in Genesis 15, 6, the Bible says, He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Instead, the religious leaders changed the rules of the vineyard. They had failed as tenants of God's vineyard. They had failed to follow the rules of the owner of the vineyard when they did not properly teach his commandments. God then sent his servants, the prophets, to receive the fruit that was due him. God showed his long-suffering and grace by continually sending more prophets to receive the acceptable fruits of righteousness, the righteousness that comes through faith, believing God and his word. The religious leaders continued to reject the prophets. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. They mistreated them and killed some of them. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, and they were killed with the sword. Hebrews 11.37 tells us. Tradition tells us that Isaiah was sawn in two with a wooden saw. They took Jeremiah and threw him in a pit, and ultimately they stoned him to death. Jesus tells us of the murder of Zechariah in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. This is how the religious leaders treated God's prophets. Now we see the rejection of God's Son, verses 6 through 8. The parable goes on, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But these tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. The Greek word for respect is intrepo, which conveys the meaning to turn or invert in a good way. The owner thought surely they would turn from their bad behavior and accept his son. The tenants, however, rejected his son. This was not just a son, but an only son. His only son. The carnage escalated to the highest level yet. They killed the owner's son. They knew who he was. This was no secret. There was no doubt. This was premeditated 
murder. Why would this benefit them? It was very probable the tenants believed that the owner had died and his son was coming in his place. The law stated if the owner was dead, the tenants would become the new owners. They assured themselves that they would then control everything. Even though the religious leaders had rejected the prophets, God said, they will respect my son. He was looking for a repentant heart in the religious leaders as their only way to redeem themselves from the acts of rejection. Their response was, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They wanted an inheritance that wasn't theirs to possess. The way into the kingdom was standing in front of them, and they could not see him. Jesus makes this pronouncement against the scribes and the Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice the child of hell as yourselves. Jesus called him a child of hell. He knew their hearts, and he knew their father. Jesus says, Satan was also convinced that if he got the air out of the way, he would receive the inheritance. Jesus says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The religious leaders had believed a lie. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus related himself to the son and made this prophetic statement about how he would be taken outside of Jerusalem and crucified as a common criminal. Their rejection of God's only Son, which ultimately was seen in the crucifixion, sealed their eternal punishment. Jesus asked in verse 9, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He answers by saying, He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. God, as owner of the vineyard, will come and destroy the wicked religious leaders. God's actions are justified. But destruction could have been avoided if only they had repented and turned to faith in the only Son. God's love for Israel had not changed. In fact, Jesus himself, the rejected Son, lamented and wept over Jerusalem. Listen to Jesus' heart. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you 
when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the day of your visitation. Can you picture it? Jesus wept over the city of God's chosen nation. He also speaks lovingly when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you to myself like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' heart was broken for Israel because of their unbelief. He wept over their rejection. Jesus echoes the Father's continual desire for Israel's repentance. How often he sent the prophets again and again, only to be rejected again and again. Nevertheless, God's plan for a people and a kingdom is not thwarted by man's rejection. God tells us in Mark 12, 9, and he will give the vineyard to others. William Lane makes this statement, the sacred trust and chosen people will be transferred to the new Israel of God. The church is the new Israel of God. Romans 9, to 26 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. What an amazing thing God has done. God did not change his requirements of citizenship. God has always required man to believe in Christ alone for his salvation. Can man do this by his own volition? Romans 9.16 says, no. Man can only come to God in response to his call. Romans 9.11. Our salvation depends on God who has mercy. How could pagan Gentiles like us become God's chosen people? God, by the very definition of his mercy, showed compassion on us and forgiveness to us instead of punishing us. He then called us from among the Gentiles to be vessels of his glory. It reminds me of a time... My pastor used to talk about this. He said, 
We're trophies of God's grace. He changed our status and location from the place where we were not his people to where we will be called sons of the living God. Right here on this earth, in this very place, where we were called not my people, those who have trusted in Christ are now called sons of the living God in his kingdom on this earth. That is where we are called by this new name. Continuing in Romans 9, starting in verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles, this is what we'll say, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead unto righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Citizenship in God's kingdom comes by possessing a righteousness that comes by faith, not by achieving righteousness that comes by works. The Israelites were trying to achieve righteousness by obeying the measuring stick of God's law. Not only were they failing, but the religious leaders were adding more laws. If they had believed in Jesus as the only way to receive righteousness rather than achieve it, they would have been saved. Jesus said, our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Do we need to work harder then to achieve it? No. Christ's righteousness is given to us when we repent and believe. Only His righteousness is acceptable to God. Ours is like filthy rags. In Matthew's record of the parable to the tenants, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. We are that people if we bring the fruit of repentance and faith. The fruit of righteousness is then imputed to us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We then become the new channel which God uses to take the gospel of salvation to the world. In verse 10 through 12, Jesus then questions the religious leaders again. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus was quoting Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. They were well known for their knowledge and understanding of the scriptures. Jesus was saying to the religious leaders, did you miss this one? A cornerstone is the most important stone in the building for many reasons. It is essential to the foundation. It is key to the support of the roof. And even more important than that, it sets the angles for the walls. If the cornerstone is off, the whole building will eventually be off. It is easy to see why the cornerstone was the most carefully selected of all stones in the building. It would ensure that the foundation, the roof, 
and the walls were all in perfect order. Cornerstones were also massive stones. One cornerstone in the western wall in Jerusalem measures 33 feet long, 7 feet wide, and 3 feet tall. It weighs approximately 50 tons. This is not the small block on the side of the door in American architecture that tells us when it was built, who built it, or who was the founder. These huge stones were essential for the integrity of the building. Without it, the building would crumble. Jesus made obvious reference to himself as the most important building block in God's kingdom. He is that massive cornerstone on which the kingdom of God is built. He is essential for the success of God's kingdom. He is the foundation. He said it himself, on this rock, I will build my church. His presence could not be overlooked or ignored. The parable had made it obvious that Israel had rejected him. The religious leaders were building their kingdom on their own foundation of legalism and ritualism, and Jesus did not fit. And because of that, they rejected him. In contrast, God was building his kingdom and chose the very cornerstone that the builders had rejected and said, in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In Acts, Peter is preaching in Jerusalem, addressing the Sanhedrin, when he says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. The rejected stone is the crucified Christ. The restored cornerstone is the resurrected Christ. Peter says again, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word. The religious leaders' unbelief was described as fruitlessness and refusing to give to God the fruit that was due him. Jesus then pronounced their judgment and proclaimed, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who produces its fruits. The marvel of God's act is when the rejected, crucified son became the resurrected, chosen cornerstone. The just God became the justifier. God's justice was satisfied when Jesus died for our sins. 
the rejected, crucified, and risen Son of God has paid the penalty for sin while at the same time extending grace, forgiveness, and justification to those who would receive him by faith. It truly is marvelous in our eyes. We become a people producing his fruits of righteousness. We have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit we received, the righteousness of Christ, leads to our sanctification and in the end, our eternal life. God makes us a people who then produce his fruit. How? Do we now have to do good works that become fruit? Yes, but not by our own power. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Then God begins to work in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. Our fruit is then acceptable to him. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is a sad but not surprising conclusion to this parable. The religious leaders did not have a change of heart. They just postponed their plan to be rid of him. They did eventually arrest and crucify Jesus. The rejection of God's authority displayed in Jesus, the rejection of his servants, and finally their rejection of God's Son determined their destiny. Where is your heart? Have you welcomed the Son or rejected Him? If you find yourself rejecting the Son, there's good news. God is extending His grace to you. He lovingly calls you to Himself to repent, to turn from your unbelief, and place your faith in his son. You do not have to experience God's wrath against unbelief and unfruitfulness. Jesus is saying, I am the way. Hear the message of the Lord. His desire is to draw you to himself. God has made a way for you to be a son of the living God and enter into his kingdom.